Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, super excited to be here with you all. Thank you so much for tuning in, y'all. We're doing some cool stuff around here, y'all. Can I brag real quick? Can I just brag on, on the community that we are formed? First off, we got to come up with a name for ourselves. Are we the, the diner patrons? Are we the are we the booth crew? Are we the uh the milkshakers? What are we here for? We gotta come shoot me, shoot me something on, on social media. James T. Robo on your favorite social media platform, uh, or or diner talks with James on Instagram. Now shoot me something. We gotta come up with a name for us, y'all. We gotta I think it'd be fun. And uh, it'd be weird if I made up my own nickname that's that's kind of weird you can't no one's ever made up their own nickname it's literally i think it's legally you're not allowed to um but things are going really well here friends i just found out that our podcast is in the top two percent according to listen notes of all podcasts around the globe and that's pretty badass because there's over two million of them so i want to thank you my friends for letting me come into your lives and letting yourself come into the diner and hanging out we talk about all sorts of topics with all sorts of badass people and today's episode is no exception coming up to the stage in just a minute is my guy smiley puzwalski yeah his name's smiley say something about it go ahead go ahead i mean his his name's also adam but we'll we'll come back to that but still smiley and i have known each other for i'm gonna say at least six years we met on the speaker circuit in indianapolis and there's just something so magnetic about this man. Uh, he is a three-time published author. Casual. Three books, y'all. He wrote a book called The Quarter Life Breakthrough. He then wrote The Breakthrough Speaker. He then said, I'm going to break through my own pattern and name a book in a different way. And he said, <laughs> he's got a book coming out this May called Friendship in the Age of Loneliness. And I've been feeling lonely, y'all. So we're going to talk about it. Uh, Smiley has spoken to oh, in over 20 plus countries. He's done a TEDx talk that is extremely popular. And he's just an incredible human being who longs to build community. And he does it in a really cool way. I'm excited to bring him up right now. My guy, Smiley. Hey, great intro. Great intro. Classic. Come on, man. Like, you know, we got to hype each other up out here. So good. <laughs> Hope I didn't miss anything, my guy. Hope I didn't Nothing miss anything. Nothing at all. Perfect. Excellent. Flawless. Excellent. What's going on, dude? I appreciate it. We're both out here drinking our tea. You're drinking, what are you drinking? A green tea over there? Is that what I got that a green tea. Jen Maicha, toasted rice. One of my favorites. Oh, like, good late afternoon. Not too much caffeine. You know, it's, it's you know, one o'clock. Yeah. Can't be having no, no black tea. Just green Come tea. On now. Yeah, exactly. It's not, not that kind of night. We're not having a black tea at <laughs> one o'clock Pacific time. Uh, <laughs> what are we doing here? Uh, <laughs> let's not get crazy. Not, yeah, take it easy. Take it easy. I love it. I love it. Uh, Smiley, uh, I'm so pumped to uh, to see you, brother. You know, uh, we have not seen each other in person in quite some time, not even just COVID related, just the fact that you live out in the Bay Area and uh, and I was in New York and now in Minnesota. Um, but fortunately, the speaker circuit brought us uh, crossed our paths a few times. And I just I just love spending time with you, man. So I'm excited that you're here, dude. Thank you. 
It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I feel the same way. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, man. Smiley, this show is called Diner Talks, okay? I'm trying to emulate these late night conversations that we have with friends. So we just told everybody it's one o'clock in the afternoon where you are. So maybe <laughs> we'll edit that. Anyway, no, probably not because I don't really edit anything. But <laughs> but still, um, I'm trying to emulate those late night conversations. You know, you live, uh, you live in the Bay Area. Plenty of great late night options. Uh, do you have a favorite late night move? What what's your what are you doing out in the bay, man? What's what's your favorite late night food? What's a guilty pleasure for you? So the bay is not good for late night food, man. It's oh, no. too healthy out here. Yeah. I mean, people <laughs> I feel like, yeah, stuff kind of shuts down around, I don't know, eleven, <laughs> ten, oh, eleven no. in terms of food. I mean, I used to live in New York. And my favorite, my go-to, I used to live in uh, on 5th and 5th, Park Slope. Uh, so my go-to was Joe's Pizza because it was open till I think, 2 in the morning, maybe even yeah. 4 in the morning. So mm-hmm. I think I, I had Joe's slice of Joe's Pizza or two slices of Joe's Pizza three, four nights a week for two years. So yeah, yeah. I that miss be- that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What's your what's your uh, pizza <laughs> topping of choice? What do you what do you do on pizza? Oh, I'm fresh mozz. Hey, <laughs> there you go. There you go, the buffalo mozzarella. Hey, okay. Yes. <laughs> fresh fresh mozz, and then maybe mushrooms. I love, I love mushroom pizza too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, Smiley, we both do a lot of presentations. I start my presentations often with food quirks and things that people eat in unique ways. And uh, and, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the this. full stack of pancakes, full, full stack, stack of pancakes, full stack of pancakes <laughs> cut in a very geometric I'm aware, way. I'm aware of your 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 love of food and love of the full stack of pancakes, James. I'm a I'm a fan, man. This is in my first rodeo here. Hey, come on now, come on. You got We're nothing if we're not branded, Smiley. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh but but here's my you know you brought up pizza which is uh one of my love languages and uh and so but a lot of people like pineapple on pizza where do you stand on the pineapple on pizza no. debate no not at all for me no, no. pineapple is no. a fruit doesn't belong on pizza thank actually, you actually tomato technically is a fruit which I yeah. learned again from watching a great show on Netflix called Waffles and Mochi. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a kid's Ooh. show produced by Michelle Obama. It's fantastic. <laughs> and the first episode is about how the tomato is a fruit, but it can wow. play as a fruit and a vegetable. But no, Amazing. no pineapples, no pineapples on pizza, please. <laughs> <laughs> Waffles and Mochi. I have not seen this. So Gotta good. check it out. Just came uh, out. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Uh, and they're and first episode coming in heavy, <laughs> just letting people know tomatoes are fruit up yeah. top. Check yourself. Yes. Uh, but yeah, but uh, I agree. Uh, no other fruits <laughs> on pizza. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Great. Well, I think this episode's allowed to continue now that you said that. So that's good. Congratulations. You passed the test. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love it. That's crazy that, you know, I mean, the Bay is, there's so much going on. You're right. It is, it is a healthier food eating scene. It doesn't advertise itself as a city that never sleeps, but I'm sure there's got to be some banging well, late night taco tacos. trucks and some, yeah. yeah, for sure. I'd say, yeah, there's some, and I live, I live now in Bern. I've lived kind of all over the Bay, but now I live in Bernal Heights, which is close to the mission, which has the best, best mm-hmm. tacos, best burritos, best Mexican food, uh, at least in this part of California, if not yeah. in all of California, in my opinion. So if I'm going any place, El Feralito. El Feralito with an F? El, El Feralito. Mm, okay. Um, for a late night, I would go steak quesadilla. But I haven't had one of those in a while. 
Yeah, I mean, so how could you? Would be, I mean, you're only drinking green tea. How would you ever stay up? <laughs> how, how could you possibly stay up, Smiley? <laughs> exactly. I'm in bed. I'm in bed by nine forty-five, man. Come on, come on now. <laughs> but yeah, if you ever come to San Francisco and you want some late night eats, go to El Farolito. You will not be disappointed. There's usually a line out the door. You can't go wrong. Burritos, quesadillas, tacos. Everyone's got their favorite. Incredible. Now, people will say 538, which is a political blog, Nate Silver, did a best burrito uh, in the world, like a best burritos rankings. Mm-hmm. And um, they, I think that they found that El, one of El, El Farolito's burritos was in the top like five. Wow. That's a... Uh... That's big. Like they had a whole science to it. They had like pie charts and graphs and like salsa, guacamole, like how much rice, how little rice, what type of meat, what type of tortilla. Like they went serious on it. These are like political (laughs) gurus. They like really (laughs) mathematically examined this. That's that's awesome. I love that. Uh, And you know, these people, these places make it right, right? They're not like Chipotle where you kind of like, you go through like the layers of the earth as you eat through the burrito. Like all of a sudden you're in sour (laughs) creamville and then you're in rice land and then whatever. Yeah, no, they do it right. And, uh, and the tortilla, the tortilla is real. Um, And uh, yeah, I love that. Well, that brings us up to our first sponsor, El Ferralito. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Need need your fix. El Ferralito. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We don't have any sponsors. Okay. Um, (laughs) um, That's awesome. I'm going to write that down for sure. I love it. Smiley. So first off, let's talk about the name, my guy, because, you know, coming in name Smiley. I mean, your, your smile does beam. The pearly whites are out here. It's stunning. (laughs) You got a great face. Um, And uh, let me make it more awkward for you. I'm going to say more. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But uh, right. But like you truly do, you truly do light up a room. When did the name Smiley happen? And were when it happened, were you like, "Eh, shoe fits? (laughs) Or were you like, no, it's Adam. Say it. I wish I was that kind of guy. That's not like, that's, that's not who I am. But so I've actually had the nickname nearly 20 years. So uh, 1997 was the birth of Smiley. Mm-hmm. Um, freshman <laughs> year of high school. Yeah, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. So I wanted to play a sport freshman year. I went to a big public high school, 2000 kids. Um, I definitely wasn't going to play football. I'm, I, you can't really see this in this headshot here, a little headshot, <laughs> but I'm a pretty small, you know, I'm not that small now, but I'm, you know, I'm not a football player. Let's just sure, say that. Yeah, right. Yeah. And our soccer team was really good, like state champions, super athletic. And I played soccer as a kid, you know, youth soccer, where you just like run after the ball, at, like 18 <laughs> people are just around the ball. Like, yeah. But I was never like going to be on the team. So there was pretty much, the only other fall sport, you know, was cross country. Mm. Well, I don't even, I didn't even know what the sport was. <laughs> like, you know, I thought it was like, away. that must be, it sounds like far away. It must be skiing. <laughs> it must be, I don't know what it is. So you just go run, you know, you just run and not like around the track. That's track and field. That's an indoor and outdoor sport that you do in the, in the winter and the spring. So in the fall, it's just running three miles, five miles, 10 miles, 15, 15 miles, whatever. So it's a couple of weeks into practice and we're running a hill workout, which is just you run up and down a big hill over and over again. Right. Okay. Appropriately named. Right. <laughs> and so my coach is this Boston guy. You know, he had been a runner. He's like pretty serious, hard nosed dude. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? Smiling, kid. Stop smiling. Stop puking. Stop puking, kid. So I'm just like, oh, this is great. And he's like, stop puking. 
stop puking, kids, stop smiling, stop smiling. So my coaches nicknamed me Smiley, and the kind of the nickname stuck. Nickname stuck. Now, yeah. now you were using the Boston the Boston accent. Was he saying like start puking or stat stat puking or stop puking, puking? As in start puking. Start, that's yeah, how in Boston yeah. in Boston stat. that's how they say it. Stat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stop puking. Come stop on, puking. Kid. Stop puking, kid. <laughs> you looking at me? Yeah. Oh, man. I had so many times in, in high school where people would be like, what are you looking at, kid? And I was like, I didn't even, I couldn't, I, I sometimes have trouble understanding what they were saying. I'd be like, I'm just looking around, you know, like, I'm just trying to make eye contact, man. Like, <laughs> let me live. <laughs> yeah, no, like, let's be friends. And they're yeah. like, what are you looking at, kid? And it's like, ah. But, you know, a lot of people, I don't mean to hate on people in Boston. There's amazing, my family's still there. I love, I love Cambridge. I love Boston. I got love, I got love for Boston. But there are definitely some, some people there that are, can be yeah. a little bit uh, aggressive, let's say. For sure, for sure, for sure. And I've said on I've said on here before, Boston, incredible city, horrible sports teams, but great, uh, great, great, great city though. Now, did you yeah. ever have the accent? They, Were you ever? They never win championships, James. They just had like a horrible run the last twenty years compared to everyone else, to right? Talk about that at all? Um, there's no place for facts on this podcast, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but did you ever get the, did you ever have the accent? Did you ever, uh, or no, I Cambridge? Never. Cambridge is a little bit different. It's not like you're in uh, Dorchester, a Southie, no. right? West, like, uh, West Bill, Bill Ricca, no. <laughs> so basically, no, I didn't. My dad's from New York. My dad grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. My mom grew up in Akron, Ohio. Yeah. So, you know, they weren't kind of like Boston born, bred and, you know, born and, and raised. So uh, I never had the accent and never developed it, but I can, I can imitate one pretty well. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You got it in the bag. It is one of the best accents to practice. I enjoy it a lot. Uh, although I, I usually lean a little too Quimby with it, a little Quimby, a little too JFK. Yeah, 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 Quimby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. I try to channel my inner uh, goodwill hunting to, to truly right. nail it. I um, got a number. I got a number. <laughs> so that's awesome, man. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned your parents. I'd be curious, man. When you were growing up, what did you, what did you want to be? Right. I mean, clearly you, uh, athletics were intriguing to you, but maybe not, not going to be the thing, but what what'd you want to be when you grew up? Well, actually sports was a big part of my life when I was a kid. I, I was really into baseball, you know, sorry to say I was a Red Sox fan. I wanted to be a, you know, I wanted to play for the Red Sox. And then when I realized, you know, that was going to be a pipe dream, I've got really into sports journalism. Which is interesting because I definitely still write today. So I was I was writing sports stories for my high school newspaper. I started actually writing even before high school. So I was always interested in writing, but was super obsessed with sports. Um, so that was kind of my thing. And then I started to realize, whoa, actually, wouldn't be that excited about writing, you know, like covering the Tampa Bay Devil Rays or something, or like <laughs> even actually, I remember getting an assignment. It's like, do you want to like write about like? you know, the college lacrosse team. And I was like, you know, not really. Like, I don't really yeah, want to yeah. do that. So my <laughs> kind of sports journalism uh, dreams went out the window too. So I was, yeah, that was probably like my early kind of, uh, my early career aspirations. Okay. Did Maybe, you go to yeah. school for that? Did you go to school no. for journalism? No. Okay. No, I, uh, I went to Wesleyan University, I, which is a liberal arts school, great school. And I became a film major. Hmm. Um, I can't really tell you exactly why. I think it was cool. 
Yeah. I mean, Wesleyan had a really good film program. So it had a really good reputation. You know, it was a small school, liberal arts school in Connecticut, which is, you know, usually people for film go to New York or LA. But Wesleyan had this really great reputation. I didn't go there because I knew I wanted to study film. I went there because I knew it was a great school. And I knew a couple people from my high school that had gone there and said it was really great and really kind of creative and artistic, um, which it was. I met a lot of people at Wesleyan that were kind of, it was one of the first times where I felt like I could be my full self and be cool. You know, I got, I kind of had a taste of that in high school on the track team. I had a lot of friends and on the track cross country and track team, but I was a kind of nerdy dorky dude in a really big school. I got made fun of a lot. You know, that was kind of, you know, I was, I was just kind of trying to figure out who I was, but at Wesleyan, I was like, Oh man, like I can be smart and be cool. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My people like, yeah, girls will want to talk to me even like, not even if I did the reading because I did the reading. It's like, (laughs) yeah, I watched. Yeah. I did the reading. Like, yeah, I wrote the paper. Like my paper is really good. Like, yes. (laughs) You know, in high school, I kind of get made fun of sometimes like you didn't do the reading. Did you like, you didn't do the, like, that you wrote the paper i'm like yeah i wrote the paper like we're reading the great gatsby it's a sick book or like we're reading invisible man by ralph ellison like that shit is dope like you should read it like it's such a good book you know so anyways wesleyan was like a place where i definitely found my people and yeah i kind of fell into film it was a really good program a lot of like kind of it was hard to get into the major you kind of had to get certain grades in classes and was really competitive and i kind of got caught up in this like oh i'm gonna be a wesleyan film major and you know, be, move to New York City and become a famous film director. So I think there was an element of coolness and prestige that was attached to it. But mm-hmm. it definitely taught me a lot about storytelling. Um, I think maybe it is influences the way I kind of I see narrative today and, and see storytelling and see like the power of kind of social, how, how you can affect people with stories and images and bring people together. Film is actually really just storytelling and narrative. So I'm glad I did it. But if I were to go back, I would probably have studied something else in college. Yeah. 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 But it's so funny how you decided to let that kind of define you, the mystique of it, of being this film major at this, uh, at, at, at Wesley. And like, that's so funny that you're like, no, this is, this is it. I finally have like something sexy about me. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny totally. how we sometimes gravitate towards things like that. Right. It, and the other thing, James, it was hard, you know, because there was like some pretty famous film majors, like uh, Michael Bay had gone to Wesleyan, which, you know, Michael Bay Heard is of like, him. Michael Bay, like, you know, like, he's doing okay. And he's like a tiny film. It's like a tiny school. And you're like, whoa, if Michael Bay went to Wesley and you know, there's some, this must be, there's some cool, cool stuff going on here. Anyway. So I remember studying, becoming a film major. And then I, of course, like most film majors or, and most graduate, like if you're going to get into that, you got to go to New York or LA, if you're staying in the U S like that's where the film world is. So I decided New York, you know, it's close to family, close to friends, moved to Brooklyn, um, with my two best friends from school and I started to work freelance in the film industry. And so I was committed. I was like, I'm a film major. I got to make it like, I'm going to be Tarantino. You know, I'm going to be Scorsese. Yeah. Like I'm going to be Spike Lee. Like I'm in the game. I'm in, but then I started to realize, I was like, this is the worst. <laughs> like I'm waking up at four in the morning <laughs> to go to film shoots. I'm freezing my ass off and I'm not directing the movie. I'm sitting on the back of a truck yeah. watching, basically making sure people don't steal shit. You know, I'm a PA or I'm being like, all right, we can cross the street now. And I did some cool things like I would, you know, uh, load, load film, be a second AC and, um, you know, load, load the film for the camera. I would um, sometimes be a location assistant, location scout. So finding locations for movies to shoot in, you know, like they don't just like randomly end up 
you know, in a park somewhere, you got to go get the permit or like they're in an Upper West Side apartment or an art gallery or a bodega. Like people, someone goes and finds those locations, talks to the owners. So I was doing cool stuff there, but I was being on these shoots for 12, 14 hours a day, 16 hours a day. It was super unhealthy. I saw a lot of people that were in the game that had a lot more experience than me, 5, 10, 15 years older than me. And they weren't like that much higher on the, the food chain than I was. And it was like, whoa, this is a really interesting industry. When I was in school, they don't talk about all the other people. You know, when you watch a movie and it's like, you sit, if I like, if you watch a Marvel movie, right? And you sit oh, yeah. to the end of the credits, you're sitting for 25 minutes. 20 minutes just for the stinger. Yeah, right. All those people. That was me. One of those people, like 18 minutes in, it's like location scout, Adam <laughs> Bozlowski. It's like, that, that was my job for two, three months at a time, right? So I kind of realized, I was like, well, this is a game. It's much more like a construction set. A film production is a construction set. Mm. And one or two people get the credit, but there's all those other people there that are working day in and day out. So I kind of, it, I, I soon realized after getting the experience, which, you know, as you do with some careers, you got to get the experience, be like, well, this actually isn't the right fit for me. But I kind of had to find out the hard way to admit like, whoa, I spent four years studying this. I had this kind of weird fantasy that oh i'd somehow fall in the film industry and this was my thing and i was going to be famous in it and to kind of had to make a have a kind of harsh talk with myself like hey it's time to leave new york this isn't my i'm going to do something else so that was like my career uh my first career as i call it it yeah. didn't last long it lasted about two and a half years about two and a half years. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's pretty good. Uh, sitting, sitting on the back of the truck and freezing in New York city. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's fascinating, man. Here's an interesting through line between a couple of, a couple of things that you just shared is that, you know, when originally you were thinking about doing the, originally you're thinking about doing the sports broadcasting and you're like, well, I don't want to cover high school lacrosse. I don't want to cover this random other sports team, right? Like I want to do the thing I want to do. I want right? to write about the Boston Red Sox. Yeah, exactly. Right. And here again, also in the film industry, you're like, well, I don't want to sit on the, I don't want to hold this <laughs> mic. I don't want to find this spot. Like I want to do the thing. I want to, I want to direct what I want to, I want to direct. And it's awesome because I mean, you are now a extremely successful entrepreneur uh, who's traveled the world and has truly just said, I'm going to do it my way. Right. I don't you're like you, you created your own lane and you said, I don't want to wait to have to climb up any sort of ladder. I just want to do the thing I want to do. When did that happen? When did that light bulb like kind of flip on for you? Yeah. And I think it's also more like, which ladder do I actually, because I don't want to make it seem like, oh, you don't have to put in the work or you don't have to put in the time or it's going to be perfect. You got to right. put in the time, you got to work and got to hustle, but you got to find the avenue and the lane that you actually want to be hustling in. I think yes. that was the biggest thing that I found with film. I was like, oh yeah, this is just like not going to where I want to be going to. Um, and so for me, it wasn't until 2012. So again, you know, I graduated college in 2005. So I spent you know, a good, what's that? Seven years trying to figure, eight years trying to figure it out. So after film, I actually, um, I went into politics. I worked on the Obama campaign in 2008. I was mm -hmm. a field organizer in Indiana. So helped uh, Obama uh, win. He actually won Indiana, which was pretty amazing for a Democrat to win that state yep. at the time. Um, and then I was like, okay, Obama won. I'm going to DC. I want to be part of government. So I moved to DC and I got into politics. I was working at the US Peace Corps. So I had this pretty great government job. Mm. 
and worked for the Peace Corps for two years. Again, it wasn't the right fit. Great organization. Wasn't me. I was still searching kind of where's my place. But you know what? I started doing a lot of Peace Corps that kind of brought me back to things that I was really good at as a kid was writing. So I was doing a ton of writing, writing memos and talking points and speeches for pretty senior officials at the at the agency. But I wasn't writing really about topics I cared about. I wasn't really writing in my own voice. I kind of had to, you know, use language that, you know, was kind of approved that would be approved by the agency. But I knew that I wanted to be doing more writing. So that the light bulb moment was really 2012. I went to a program called Starting Block. Starting Block Institute for Social Innovation brings together a lot of people that are interested in entrepreneurship and social innovation, social entrepreneurship, which is, you know, using business for good, this idea that you can make money, but also give back purpose and profit, right? Those don't have to be mutually exclusive. And I met a lot of people at this program. It was a leadership training, leadership development program for five days. It was in LA, actually. Um, They now host them all over the country. And I went to this program and a lot of people are like, wait a second, Smiley, like you want to start writing, you want to start supporting young people. Like it's not too late. I was like, well, I'm almost 30 years old, man. I went to Wesleyan (laughs) and I'm a failed film major. Like it is too late. They're like, it's not too late, man. Like if you want to do that, like you have to do that. Like who the hell is going to do it if you don't do it? So I, I, I didn't have like kind of, I had never really met those believers as I call them, that community, that supportive community. And I also had never met uh, a, a real community of entrepreneurs. Mm. I had never really been in that kind of supportive circle. I mean, there were people in this program that were young. They were like in college still, or even just out of college that had started businesses that were inventing things that had built apps and products and all of these things. And they inspired me, man. I got inspired by people that were five or 10 years younger than me just to go for it. It's like, mm-hmm. it's not too late. I, I'm, you know, it's 2012. I'm almost 30. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? I so James, I I I left that I left that job spring 2012. I started a blog, a WordPress blog. It's a janky blog. I just gave up the domain because it was so ugly. I didn't even want people to see it. It cost $18. I had never written a professional blog post, like a you know, put out a blog post under my name until I was 30. So yeah. if you're out there being like it's too late, it's not too late. You know, I've written three books since then, but at the age of 30, I'd barely written anything, you know, professionally uh, ever before. And went for it. And I started writing and starting putting my voice out there. I was like, hey, I want to move to California. That's where I've always wanted to live. I had this fantasy about San Francisco because I had a couple of friends from college that had lived out here and I visited and I I thought it was beautiful and it felt like a kind of magical place of dreamers and entrepreneurs and kind of interesting people. And I came out in 2012 and, you know, the rest is kind of history. And I, and I basically, you know, it's not like I found success overnight. I, I was broke <laughs> when I moved out here. Yeah. I had to, you know, do a bunch of different things to get by, but I found kind of a lane I wanted to hustle in. I found that kind of the ladder that I wanted to climb a little bit, or I was like, I want to stick my teeth into this. I'm okay with writing some articles and blog posts and not getting paid for a bit. I didn't even know speaking was a thing. I didn't do a speech for still another two or three years from getting going, but I just knew that I wanted to do something more creative and wanted to kind of find my voice. That was kind of my mission at that point. Yeah. That's badass, man. I love that. I love it. Thanks for walking us through that. The, the and, if you, line, and if you're listening, can I, can I just say, if you're listening being like, man, I, this guy's you. been all over the place. That's true. Like, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it and say like, you know, like I had a 
you know, when I was five years old, like I was like, I'm going to be a public speaker and, you know, be on a podcast one day or publish a book one day. That's not true, man. It's not like that for everyone. And maybe and you hear those stories. It's for a lot of us, it's a lot more complex. There's starts and stops and it's windy and that's okay. So like one of my messages, like don't, doesn't all have to make sense in some sort of fairy tale story. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. It, it, it is, it's true, right? I, mean, I think actually, I feel like your story is more common than the person who at seven said, I'm going to be a this and, and then actually saw it through, right? Your, I mean, my story mirrors that of yours as well with the randomness that I, that I did. And yeah, I, I completely agree with you, but you, you just keep yourself keep putting yourself out there, right? Keep putting yourself in the way of opportunity. Keep putting yourself in the way of, well, let's try this and let's try this. Right. And that, I think that's what a cool through line is that you never settled because a lot of people are just like, all right, well, I guess I'll just, all right, well, this is what I'm doing. I went to school for this. So now I have to do this because otherwise I'm going to let who knows who down, or I'm going to think that I wasted my time and my, this, you know, I'm, I, famously famously failed a I famously failed a genetics final in college and uh, and I called my my parents and and I just started bawling on the phone with them I kind of had a, a bit of a, a break actually and and I was just like I'm just so sorry that I failed you it was like my junior year and it was my second semester of my junior year at that and I just like remember apologizing I'm just like I am so sorry I have wasted your time. I have wasted your money. Uh, I could have gone to a state school instead. I went to a state school in another state, and so then I'm fortunate enough that my parents helped me through college. And and so like I just like kind of just like poured it all out to them. The whole the whole shame hole came across the line, and and uh, and it was definitely one of those moments where I remember my dad said after I finished, he's like, "Are you done?" <laughs> I say yes. <laughs> I say yes, sir. Um, and uh, and he said, you know, James, like, first off, we are going to need you to do better in school, <laughs> but we also didn't send you to your university just so you could do this one thing, right? We sent you, we wanted you to go to college so that you could learn who you are and what matters to you and find your voice and find uh, skill sets and, and have experiences so that you could come out more self-assured and maybe with a little bit more direction, not an exact direction, but more direction. And, and I'm so grateful for the grace that I was given in that moment. I remember I cried even more because, you know, anytime someone's nice to you, it's awkward, but, uh, but still that was a moment that I I remember having. Yeah. That's great advice too. And kudos to your, to your dad for saying that, you know, cause that's, it's not about finding the answers. It's learning how to be able to ask the questions. Right. Mm. Mm, say it one more time for the people in the back, Smiley. Yeah, it's not. It's not about finding the answers. It's learning about how to ask the questions, right? Like yes. that's that's. But that's actually not how our educational system is usually set up, or or you know, because we're kind of told, you know, pick your major, and it's like people are picking their major at the age of nineteen or twenty. I mean, <laughs> good if you know who you are at nineteen or twenty, like that's a beautiful thing. But most people don't, or they think they know who they are, and then they evolve, or they change, or something happens in the world, or they read a book that's just like, whoa, I want, you know. And just that's the whole point of life. The point is to have the kind of tools and the equipment, the confidence, the resilience, 
to kind of be able to learn, to grow, to adapt, to evolve those things. Um, but we don't talk about that much because, you know, we live in this kind of status obsessed society where it's like, you know, what are you doing? How much money are you making? You know, who, what do you do? And, and, and what, you know, what gives you those credentials, but you start to learn as you get older that all that is kind of BS and it's a lot more about the intangibles. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Is that kind of what led you to write the quarter life breakthrough book? Kind of that idea that you saw a lot of your peers and what you yourself went through. Is that, is that what sparked that? Yeah. I mean, really like what I was trying to do with quarter life breakthrough was kind of explore my own quarter life crisis, my own kind of being lost in my twenties, following this kind of career ladder um, ideal that was kind of out of date and realizing, whoa, actually a lot of people are changing jobs and careers. It's okay to do that. The average millennial will have 15 to, diff- tw- 15 to 20 different jobs in their lifetime, right? The majority of people do not do something that is the exact, that is the same thing that they majored in college. Only 25% of people do something that they actually majored in college in, Crazy, right? Yeah. So that means three quarters, 75% don't, they do something completely different, but no one ever talks about that. <laughs> I currently use my marine biology degree to impress the dates at aquarium. Is that <laughs> Are you actually a marine biologist? That's I, what your actually, was? I, I do I have a BS in oh marine biology. Gosh. Fun That's fact. That's amazing. Like George Costanza. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Someone hand me a golf club. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, keep going, brother. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was really kind of trying to give people, you know, the, the, the subtitle of that book was uh, Invent Your Own Path, Find Meaningful Work, and Build a Life That Matters. So it was kind of really about less about, um, you know, what's, what's the answer? What's like kind of the singular job and what does meaning look like in your life? What does it look like to build a life that matters inside and outside of your career, outside of work? So kind of thinking about it more holistically and just kind of giving people, making it a positive, right? Cause we had talked, everyone was talking about quarter life crisis, midlife crisis, such a negative thing, a breakthrough, a moment of opportunity, a moment of possibility, a moment of, hey, I don't know if this is going to work. I'm moving to San Francisco to become an author, to become a writer. It might not, but I'm going to learn something on the journey. Yeah. I'm going to grow. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to try to self-publish a book. I'm going to try to get a book deal. I'm going to you know, get on stage and see what happens when I start talking. Good stuff's going to come from that. You know, yeah. That's good. That's all, that's all positive. So empowering people to kind of think like that as well. I love that. I also love hearing you say, I'm going to move to San Francisco and be, and become a writer. I mean, that talk about, talk about a sentence that hasn't been widely said since like the sixties and seventies. <laughs> um, right. Like <laughs> true. But you, you brought it back brother and you crushed it. I'm moving I'm to San Jack, Francisco. Jack, Jack Kerouac over here. <laughs> hey, Nashbury, how you doing? Uh, <laughs> I love that, man. I love that. Although, I, let me say this for the record, though, James, for all the people listening, <laughs> it is really hard. Well, you can't make it as a writer in San Francisco if you just write. I mean, you maybe could, but like, let's just be realistic. I'm not sure that there are many places in the United States of America or frankly, anywhere right now where you can make it as a, just a writer. And if you are doing that, that's a beautiful thing. But um, that was another lesson I learned a couple years later <laughs> that it was <laughs> actually another great lesson, though, because and this is true. This is like, you don't learn this stuff until you start doing it. So remember I mentioned, I didn't just start speaking right away. Right. Yeah. I didn't know it was a thing. I mean, I had seen, you know, 
stand-up comedian speak and I'd seen, you know, like I knew that, okay, there's Tony Robbins and there's some, you know, motivational speaking is a thing, but I never, you know, knew it was a real profession for normal people. But I started to realize soon after writing, okay, you know, people like the blog post. I, I'm, I, I had self-published this book. There was some interest. People were really into it. Um, I started to get some interest. And I was like, oh, I could try to sell books for 10 or 15 bucks. Kind of hard to do that. Not It's hard to make much money from that. But that there were companies that were interested in hearing about what the material was related to millennials and attracting talent, retaining talent, how to make employees happier, how to get them to stay longer at their jobs and be more engaged, more productive, better employees, and that people would pay me money to do that. And I was like, oh, this is a thing, (laughs) right? So it's not just the writing, it's the speaking. But I wouldn't have known that unless I started doing it. Sure. Um, I had to learn. I mean, maybe people know that ahead of time because they study the industry really well. Good for them. But I kind of found it out just <laughs> good for them. <laughs> good I kind of found bad. it out the hard way. You know, like I like to say, like my first speaking gig, I paid for the gig. So it was I. I bought. I rented out the space. <laughs> it was a bookstore, Alley Cat Books, in the Mission in San Francisco, not far from El Ferralito, by the way. Sure, one of our sponsors. Yep, mm-hmm. one of our sponsors. <laughs> I got books. I spent a couple hundred bucks to rent out the space. I got, you know, wine and cheese and cans of PBR and had a couple of my friends there. And it was like me doing the launch party for crowdfunding campaign for my first book. That was my first speaking gig. Cost me money. Incredible. Incredible. (laughs) Yeah. Lost money on your first speaking gig. That's so funny. (laughs) But, but that speaks to your hustle. Right. Again, again, they're coming back to the idea of, of never settling, looking at not as a crisis, but as a breakthrough. Right. Like uh, the, the name Smiley. Right. Like I feel like you see opportunity. Right. You don't see closed doors. You see doors that just need to be opened. And yeah. it's it's pretty awesome. And it's very admirable. I mean, there there are times where I sit back and watch what you're doing and I'm like, yo. I mean, it's so easy to compare ourselves to to each other uh, in this world, right? I'm like, yo, this dude wrote three books in like six years, uh, and he's, he's he's spoken in twenty countries. He's been all over here. His TED talks got more views than mine, right? Like, I mean, it's so easy to compare things, but but I I have been in nothing but awe of you, brother, and I think it is so cool to watch the way that you consistently put yourself in the path of uh, of what you are chasing, right? You're not just like, you're not just sitting on the sidelines. There's this guy named Scott McCain who wrote a book that I really like called Iconic. Um, and uh, and and it's, it's a cool book and he talks about how do you become iconic, right? Being distinctive is cool. And that's what his first thing was how do you become distinctive? His first book or one of his first books it was distinctive. And then he's like, okay, well, what's the next level up from being distinct is being iconic. And, and one of the first rules that he talks about in order to be iconic is that you have to play offense and mm. you, Smiley, play offense, Right, you are not playing defense. You're not waiting for the coach to put you in the game. You are out there running the routes on the right side of the field and making sure that you're where you need to be. Is that something that is that something that you learned how to do? Is that something? Have you always been kind of I'll call it tenacious, but in a good way, right? Not in a negative way. But uh, have you always been tenacious in that way? I think I learned pretty early on, kind of in this 
you know, in my entrepreneurial journey that like, it wasn't, no one was going to reach out to me. <laughs> like there was not going to be a permission slip there. Yeah. Right. I, that was actually one of the best things I learned early on was like, Oh, like you could, you can wait for someone to call you an expert <laughs> <laughs> or you can just be like, I'm an expert. I'm not, I'm not saying like you call yourself an expert if you don't know anything and you've never, you know, worked a day in your life or, or read a book or studied your right. craft. Yep. But early on started to realize like, Hey, like this isn't, it's, it's going to be really hard to kind of go through the gatekeepers. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of met with this, uh, I met with a woman who was working at this publishing house when I first had an idea for a book. And she told me this straight up. She was like, I was really excited too about the meeting. I was like, this is my break. She was like, you're not ready to get a book deal. Like, we're not going to give you a book deal. And I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, like killing me here. You know, yeah. I had my blazer on and everything. I was ready. And she's like, you're just not ready. Like you, you know, like you've, you've written a couple of pieces. You're a decent writer, but like, you haven't done the work yet. You know, like you don't have that many followers. You don't have a big platform. And I was mm -hmm. like, she was like, you should self-publish and, and see what happens. It was the best advice I got because I realized, okay, I don't need these people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's real talk. And she worked in a publishing house, you know, and I was kind of like, whoa, what she's saying is just go do it. Right. Mm -hmm. Don't wait for permission. Just go make it happen. Like she's like, you have a book to write, write the damn book. So I did write the book and it sold thousands and thousands of copies. And then people started paying attention. Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> then she reached back out and was like, hey, we still can't give you a book deal. I was like, oh. <laughs> she, she just called you to just push you back on the sword. <laughs> well, I sent her the copy and she was like, you know, this is really good. We still can't give you a book deal, but you should talk to my friend. She's a literary agent. And I, she signed me to, to redo a second version of the book. But the point was, the lesson there was like, stop waiting around, like stop thinking that someone's going to knock on your door being like, we're the New York times. Like your stuff's great. Like, come on, pack your bags. We're going to New York city. Right. Like yeah. Chris Anderson had a Ted, like we're, we're taking you in. Like, let's go. Like we're going to the Ted talks. Like, you know, not going to happen. Yeah. Right. Oprah's not coming to the door. Like, I mean, I hope so, but it's not going to happen. The point is just keep doing the thing. If you, you know, if you've got good material, if, if people want to hear your stuff, it's going to get out there. And that was great advice for me. And I kind of really, that has shaped my kind of entrepreneurial creative career uh, of just making it happen and going for it. I think I learned that quickly, like with the author thing, I, I had this assumption that you had to be with a major publisher to be a legit author. Not mm -hmm. true. Yeah, not true. true. Yeah, it's not. That doesn't mean that, you know, if you do it on your own, it's going to be great, but like it could be if you have some good material, if you take your time, if you hire an editor, right. if you, if you develop your content, your craft, your stories, you, you, you know, you do the work, but the point is you don't need to kind of wait for that permission slip. And that's shaped a lot of how I've, I've approached my speaking career too, because again, I realized, wait a second, I started to go to a lot of these conferences and you and I have been at a lot of these conferences and I started to realize, Okay. I see these people that are like working with a top agency or have a huge fee. Some of them are pretty good. Some of them aren't. <laughs> some of them are great. Yeah. Right. And some of them I'm like, okay, like I can do this. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm just going to like, got do you rock what you have and you put it out there. And if people are excited about it, you're going to get booked. If people are not, you need to keep, go back and do more work or find something else. Right. Like that's, you know, but I, I started to realize like, oh, there's not that much difference. These people just decide to do it. And they're like, I'm going to call myself a speaker. I'm going to say, this is my topic. And they, they're going for it. Yeah. And it was great. It was kind of another great wake up call of, oh, you don't, yeah, you don't need a top speaking agent to be a speaker. You just need a page on your website that says speaker contact form. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. To, to date, most of my, most of my gigs and most of the money I've earned as a public speaker has been entirely through my own work and my own contacts, my own website. Yeah. I've done some work with major speaker agencies, but it's the vast majority of the work I've done has been um, just through my website, yeah, which, sure. you know, that's kind of the world we live in, you know, in, in, in 2000, you know, in, in this moment, but um, you know, it's, you don't, it's scary too, because you're like, wait, if anyone can do it, that means anyone can do it. It's not that exclusive. And you're like, yeah, that's the point. But it also kind of makes you be like, Whoa, like, Oh my gosh, I'm competing against everyone. But I think the point is like the barriers that used to exist don't hopefully for, for, for folks. Um, and that it's much more about practice. Um, it's much more about trial and error, figuring out what works and finding your voice and finding what people are excited about and just kind of playing with your material. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. I, <laughs> I, I love hearing I love hearing about it just because, I mean, first off, it gets me jazzed, right? I got goosebumps over here being like, yeah, no, you got, you got to do it yourself, right? If anybody can do it, that means anybody can do it. Why not you? Why not who you, whatever, let's go, right? Like, and it's, it's, it's awesome. It's really cool to, to hear and, and to have watched, uh, watching you do just that. Uh, and I agree that there are a lot of systems at play that we think, that we assume that like, oh, you need to get this in order to do this, right? And we always say that's like, all right, well, I need to get, if I'm going to be an author and then I got to get a major publisher, if I'm going to be a speaker, then I need to write a book or I need to have a major agency or if I'm going to uh, do this and I need this. And that's not, that's not the truth, right? I mean, the internet has really leveled the playing field in so many ways, right? And, 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 and so, and hustle also levels the playing field. Now, if you, if you put yourself in the right places and you've been able to consistently do that. And it's been credible, but here's, what's also badass about you, Smiley, is that along the process of doing that and hustling, you've never said I'm climbing the mountain alone. You have mm. always said, no, everybody let's go keep up. Right. Your, your philosophy has never been, I'm going to get to the top and then help people. You have consistently been helping people along the way. And it's really beautiful to watch the way you build community, which makes sense about, about your next book. And I want to ask you about that, but first smiley, we got a, we got a little segment that we need to do here before we start talking about community. We got a segment on the show smiley. It is called things that you didn't know about me before, but are now really glad that you did. Smiley, here's what you need to know. Okay, first off, uh, the premise of this, it stays the same every single time. But the title of the segment changes every week. So <laughs> what we're going to do is that we are going to share a couple of random facts about ourselves. And these can be anything. Maybe you have a fear. Maybe you have a food quirk. Maybe you have a... Uh, I don't know, uh, something that is just a, a random memory from childhood or, or something like that. Uh, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to share a, uh, a random story about ourselves. 
And uh, are you in? Are you in? Are you down to play? I'm in. I'm in. Let's do it. I like it. Let's I like go. it. I'll go. I'll go first because it'd be rude for me to <laughs> to for me to to spring this on you and then make you go first. Uh, so, um, the random fact that I want to share today is that uh, <laughs> I don't think I've shared this one yet on here, uh, but it's it's a well known one that some some people know this about me because if you ever see me speak before. But uh, I dislocated my knee dancing to Shania Twain's <laughs> hit "Man, I Feel Like a Woman" <laughs> at my senior prom. <laughs> oh, that's so good. <laughs> That's around. I don't think I've shared that one yet. We're 30 episodes in. I feel like it's time I can bust it out. But uh, but yeah, that's that's our senior prom. It was during dinner. I don't know who the DJ was. He was playing straight fire all night. He didn't slow it down during the meal. He kept the bangers coming. And my friend said, we were like, if he's going to keep the dance floor hot, we're going to make sure it doesn't get chilly. And uh, we got out there and had the time of our life. And I dislocated my knee dancing to Shania Twain's hit. So there it is, brother. <laughs> So any ma- random fact? Any random fact. If you've got right. an embarrassing story, whatever you got. I am a sucker for rom-coms. I love rom-coms. Oh, love yeah? actually Notting Hill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you've got mail. Give it to me. Give me a not- 10 things I hate about you. Oh, all my God. She's all that. She's all that. <laughs> 90s rom-com, early 2000s, baby. Even the new ones, man. The Netflix is you know good with it, popping out the new ones left and right. Mm-hmm. Give it to me. I love a rom- I love a good rom com. My favorite that, genre. That's your favorite genre, is rom. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it's corny. I know it's silly. But well, that and a good heist movie. I love a good heist movie, like a good mm, yes. Italian <laughs> Job or Money Heist or something like that. I love a good heist sure. Movie. Yeah, yeah. Italian Job's a classic. Uh, awesome. That is so funny. So I mean, like, are you like paying attention to movies that are coming? I mean, it's COVID right now, so it's a little weird. But are you like, if you know, if if we were in times where we could go to the theaters, would you like, oh shoot, like this movie's coming out, I can't wait to see it. Are you that committed to rom coms? You're like, I'm going to the theater. I love going. To Jason Siegel's got a new movie coming out. Yes. I'm going. Forgetting I'm Sarah going. Marshall three. <laughs> um. I used to, I used to go to movies when I lived in New York. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is go to a movie in the afternoon by myself. Love that. I love Just it. Like you know, I'm not waiting. I don't care what what time you get here, what seats you want. I'm going where when I want to go, where I want to sit. Popcorn just the way I like it. Two o'clock. I'm out of the movie. It's still four thirty. Like boom, I got the whole evening. <laughs> I love going to movie. I haven't been to a movie in a long time. Though. I know, right? Rest in, rest but, um, peace. What is your, what's your movie snack? What's your go-to movie snack? Well, I usually sneak snacks into the movie because I'm kind of cheap. Because it was popcorn and a soda and a candy bar now costs like 38 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> and the movie ticket's 17 in New York. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'm yeah. usually bringing in maybe like, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Just when you didn't think you'd get cooler, friends, uh, rom-coms yeah, exactly. and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> Bring so your own slushy. dishes. <laughs> toast on toast, though. I like uh, peanut butter and jelly on toast. Oh, okay. Even like yeah. even though the toast will no longer be warm by the yeah, time but it's you like, eat it. But it's still crispy, so it kind of tastes, you know, it tastes oh, wow. like a, yeah, it's, that's my so you're, thing. You're coming out with some crumbs on your shirt is also what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. Toast is a little crumbly. I'm a junior yeah. mints man. I usually, I usually <laughs> oh, get junior mints. Cool. Yeah. Well, junior man said, yeah, I don't, I don't usually get the soda or anything like that, but uh, now that I'm in a relationship uh, now, you know, now, now we get to split things, which is great. It makes the costs a lot better. 
Uh, but yeah, that's super fun, man. That's super fun. Uh, my favorite movie of all time, as long as we're, well, we'll stick on movies here, random facts. Now, my favorite movie of all time uh, is a movie called The Bronx Tale. Um, awesome. uh, and it's great, Chaz Palminteri and, and whatnot. But my second great favorite movie, of all time, great amazing soundtrack. soundtrack for sure. Uh, but my second favorite movie of all time is one that we mentioned today, Goodwill Hunting. Uh, Goodwill Hunting is an incredible movie. Robin Williams is is my hero. If I could, uh, if I could, you know, with a classic, like who would you have dinner with? I would have dinner with Robin Williams, um, because he. Not only is I mean his, his comedic timing is his brilliance, um, but also I was someone who was typecasted a lot when I was younger as the big funny goofy guy. Right. Maybe because I'm a big funny goofy guy, but I don't want to talk about that. But still, um, there were moments where I was like, no, I know I have more of a range. And like watching Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting, I was like, see, see, we can we can do this. I could be in dramas, and uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a big thing for me. So Robin Williams, one of my heroes. Goodwill Hunting, one of my favorite movies of all time. So I love that. My one of the the best yep. scenes ever. Sorry to interrupt. The best sure. scene ever, like when he's doing, you know, recall. Well, as a Red Sox fan, and he's you know recalling the Carlton Fisk home run. <laughs> he's like, and and Will's like, so you were at the game? He's like, no, I gave my ticket to a friend. He's like, what? You weren't at the game? He's like. Oh, I had to go, you know. Had to go see about a girl. I had to go see about a girl. It's like <laughs> such a good line. Such a good line. Give us one more random fact, Smiley. Um, I do not like to drive. Not a big driver. Do not like, like to automobile. Drive. Yeah. Has that been uh, yeah, always, it's not ideal. always thing? Okay. Uh no. <laughs> it's not ideal. Yeah, it's not ideal. Um, no, I definitely was driving through my like early twenties, but I just like kind of, after I lived in New York, did, didn't have a car in DC, didn't have a car in New York. You don't, you know, it doesn't make sense to have a car without parking and all that. But, um, yeah, I just haven't had a car for the last, I don't know, 12 years or something. I just haven't been a big driver. So like, I don't drive a lot. So yeah. that's something that's like a growth area for me. I got to practice driving, but it kind of scares me and. Yeah, so I'm just waiting out for the self-driving cars so that I just can kind of skip this like, ah, you know, I could become a good driver. I'm just going to wait another 10 years and just get in there and just be chilling. <laughs> so every time you go to a speaking gig and you have to rent a car, do you get a little, you get a little nervous? Well, I rent a car sometimes. I take Ubers. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, maybe, yeah, we must, we must have different gigs because sometimes I'm flying into <laughs> Wichita and driving three hours to who knows where in Kansas, but, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I love that brother. That is a delightfully random fact. I'm the opposite. Uh, I would driving. drive everywhere if I could. I mean, I love flying too, but, um, driving is, is a sense of peace for me. It's a calming thing. It's something that I do to relieve stress. Uh, so yeah, so that's super fun. I love that. I guess, you know, maybe that's what it is. Cause I grew up in Boston and Boston people, drivers are kind of aggressive. So maybe if like, you know, they're the worst and they're just like, you know, cur- you can just see them cursing you while you're driving and yeah. you just like, so maybe if I like did a little practicing or kind of tried to get away from my Boston driver, like, you know, roots, yeah. that would help be get a good meditative of, practice. Get up to Sonoma for a little bit and drive around. Yeah, he'll, be, just, he'll be, he'll be good. He'll be good. Drive up to Mendocino or something. Um, <laughs> I love that. So uh, let's jump back in brother. You, 
have a book coming out in May, correct? Is May? Um, That's right. In May. And uh, the book is called Friendship in the Age of Loneliness. Now, the overwhelming emotion that I've had during quarantine and during, you know, this whole pandemic time, I would say one of the most overwhelming emotions is that of loneliness. Mm. And I, uh, I, I just, I miss my people. We moved out here. Uh, we moved out here only, only two years ago to uh, something like that. And so there wasn't enough time to really make friendships, let alone like COVID level, y'all good, y'all safe friendships. And it, uh, and, and I'm just kind of, and I'm a giant extrovert as well. Yes, same. And so, and so, you know, it's, it's been hard. I mean, Tina and I literally had to make another human just so we could have a friend and we had a, a baby on New Year's Eve. Um, but even that, I mean, that was still nine months of loneliness, but it was, it's, it is a big emotion that I have felt. And I'm curious, you know, we often teach things that we need to know, right? As speaker, as speakers, as as, sure. as whomever, is that is is that something that that sparked it for you? Were you feeling this kind of thing, and you were like, "Huh, I bet I'm not yeah. alone." Let me do this. Where where did it come oh, from? Hundred percent. I mean, so there's there's two origins for origins for the book. The first is just that that you know. I'm a, I'm a, look, my nickname's Smiley. <laughs> I'm a positive, happy dude. I love people. And I got a lot of friends, right? And I meet people all the time, right? We mm -hmm. normally, at least not when there's a pandemic, our job for a lot of the years to go around and meet people and get them yes. pumped up and inspire them and talk to them. So I get to go to conferences. I'm at companies. I'm talking to people, meeting people on planes, meeting people everywhere. You know, you get friends and followers and whatever and start to realize this is a couple of years ago, like, man, I got all these connections, <laughs> but I miss my friends. Wait a second. Who are my real friends? <laughs> mm. And a lot of the time I'm on the road alone or I'm just missing people and I'm not sure who my people are and I'm feeling lonely. If I'm feeling lonely and I'm meeting new people constantly, like for a living, my job is to meet new people then maybe other people are going through this too. You start asking people, being like, yeah, I'm lonely. Like, what's going on? Well, you find out that two thirds of Americans are lonely. 70% of millennials, 80% of Gen Zers, right? 200,000 people that are, haven't, haven't spoken to a close relative in over a month. And this is a global problem, not just in the US, Europe, Japan, that it's an epidemic, that loneliness is actually an epidemic and it's a huge issue. So I, that was a big origin of the book for me. Uh, the other origin of the book was losing one of my best friends. So one of my best friends died at the age of 32 uh, from brain cancer, from a brain tumor. And he was a really special man uh, named Levi Felix. He had started a whole community all around um, balance in the digital age. He started this organization called Camp Grounded, which is a tech-free summer camp for adults. So we would take people into the woods and the redwoods of California and upstate New York and North Carolina and Texas. And for four days, we'd, when they arrived, we'd lock away their technology, the digital technology, so they can have a phone, no Apple Watch, no MacBook Pro, no technology. Couldn't use your real name, so you had to have a nickname. If you didn't have a nickname from when you were a kid, we'd have nickname uh, people that would give you a nickname, nickname givers, namers. Uh, couldn't talk about work, no, what do you do? Um, no talking about age, how, know how old you are. And it was just this amazing experience of kind of authentic connection and play and allowing people to kind of channel their inner child. And it changed a lot of people's lives. 
So I wanted to write a book that kind of spoke about my own loneliness and then kind of the legacy and lessons that Levi had taught me and kind of taught our community uh, and why they're so important now. Cause we have all these connections. We have all this technology, which is, can be really powerful, right? Like if you think about the pandemic and we've been able to maintain these relationships and zoom and, you know, social media and texting and all of these things are, can be great, but there's something missing. And it's not the same as having that IRL connection or just really having a one-on-one -on -one deep connection with people. I think, you know, one of the things that people are lacking, like loneliness is the, the subjective difference. It's the gap, right? It's the gap between what you think, you know, what you want from your connection and what exists. Hmm. It's a subjective difference between like, I want to be, you know, like, I, I really wish I could be like, feel like this connection in my life, but I feel this, right? It's that difference. And one of the reasons I think that people experience that so much is because of social media. Because if you are looking at this, you're like, they're connected, they're connected, man, they didn't invite me to the party. Like, oh shit, they're in in you know, uh, they're in um, Mexico. Mexico. Oh my God, they're in whatever, they're, you know, they're eating dinner there. So you're constantly just being like, man, everyone is more connected than me. Everyone's doing something cooler than I am. Meanwhile, probably people are feeling the same way as you. <laughs> yeah. So it's a huge issue. And I wanted to write a book that kind of spoke to that, both my own feelings, other people, and like actually kind of how do we just put friendship and relationships more at the center of our lives? The actual kind of getting to know people better, showing up for people in their lives, uh, having rituals where we spend more time with our friends, correspondence where we write more letters or reach out to people, just like little simple things that we can do to just be a better friend. If we do that, I think we can, we can be, you know, live health, healthier, happier lives. Like there's a direct correlation between social relationships and health and longevity. Yeah. Like there's research out of Harvard that shows, you know, the most important factor for living a healthy, long, happy life is your social relationships. It's before, yeah, it's before everything else. It's crazy. Before everything else. It's yeah. just like, wow, how, how positive and how, uh, you know, how hell do you feel about your social relationships is the most likely indicator that you're going to live longer and live healthier. It's incredible. Cause it's so simple. It's like, that shit's free. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe you got to take someone out to lunch, but like, it's more <laughs> or less free, right? Yeah. It doesn't mean career success or prestige or no wealth. Nope. Social relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we don't talk about it that much. I mean, we're spending 4% of our time with our friends, 4%. That's crazy. That's low. And that's, that's, and that's that not is, enough. Yeah. And that is, those aren't just COVID numbers, right? That's in general. That's pre COVID. Right? Pre COVID. And, and those loneliness numbers are all before COVID. Yeah. I mean, and then with, with the pandemic, you know, with all the social isolation, I mean, we're seeing all these skyrocketing rates of mental health challenges, especially for young people. It's actually, uh, really, really scary in terms of, you know, teenage anxiety and depression. And um, it's, it's, it's really awful. So, you know, we need to talk about it more. I think we need to kind of say like, hey, friendship is not just texting. It's not just DMing. It's not just emojis. It's not that's, you know, that's not it. It's the real physical contact. Of course, we can't all be together in the same room now, but it's developing those relationships so that we can be together or that we can say, pick up the phone and actually call someone or have like the actual connection, communication with somebody that's deeper than just kind of the surface level, like, you know, likes or stars or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. We're letting social uh, social media serve as a barometer for our self worth, right? We're determining whether we're not we're good enough, funny enough, hot enough, smart enough, rich enough, successful enough, whatever enough based on a like, a click, a view, a screenshot, a retweet, a follow, right? Like like you said, and it's uh, and we're losing, right? The yeah. <laughs> the algorithms will always win. <laughs> there's and, there's data, yeah. yeah, exactly. There's data that shows like that links more time on Instagram to uh from to more eating disorders. <laughs> Right. Because people have like a warped like idea of like what they should look like or what their body should look like or what their skin should look like. Um, you know, U.S. teenagers spending seven hours a day on screen media. It's like ridiculous. Yeah, it is crazy. Yeah, for sure. You know, so in writing this book, was that something that you were already working on? And like working on like, how can I become less lonely or in writing the book, did you basically learn during the writing process what you also need to do? How, what, what, how was that for you? It was a reminder. I think like what I realized in the book is kind of, I had the tools. I just didn't know what I needed to kind of remind myself, like how simple it was. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I was, it was really kind of getting back to my roots and getting back to who are the people in my life that I really want to maintain deep relationships with. Like I kind of was like going from lost to found of like feeling overwhelmed, feeling lonely, feeling not sure who my people were to being like, I'm going to go talk to them. I'm going to ask them, you know, what they do about this or the people in my life that I see that seem to be very connected or doing a lot of community work in their lives. Hey, what are your practices? What are your tools? How, what are your approaches and learning from them? And then the guide is kind of, as you say, like you write what you need to know, like a reminder to myself, mm-hmm. right? So that I can pick this up whenever I feel a little lonely and turn the page, you know, whatever, and be like, okay, you know, I'm going to write this person a letter. Okay. I'm going to start a Monday night activity club. Like, okay, I'm going to have a virtual dinner party. Okay. You know, I'm going to create um, this ritual with my friends. Like it kind of creating that reminder and just showing like, you don't have to do all of these things, but if you take one action or two actions, that's the point, you know, it's just like a couple things that we can do to make people feel a little bit more connected. It goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, it's simple. Just those little, just those little things. And I know, I know for me, I find making friends as an adult to be hard. It's, it's, it's awkward. It feels like dating. Um, It is just like, and, and it is something that I am not very good at, right? When you're, when you're in, in school, whether it's college uh, or uh, college or high school or getting a terminal degree somewhere or whatever, there is, there's built in cohorts, there's colleagues, there's dining halls, there's, you know, rec leagues, there's all that kind of stuff. And yes, some of that stuff exists as adults and more and more is, uh, fortunately, but I'm in four rec leagues, James. I'm in four rec leagues. leagues. Sign me up for your dodgeball team. Um, Right. (laughs) Right. And so the, the, uh, but there's still this awkward gap. And I don't, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Like how, how has making friend as an adult been for you? And, yeah. and what I would say is making friend as an adult with someone who is, uh, let's say with someone who's in closer proximity to you, right? Like maybe in the same town yeah. as you, as opposed, yes, we can make friends. I mean, you know, the, the new popular app clubhouse that's app, you know, yes, we, I've met some cool people on there and it's great, yeah. but I'm still, I still need to get on my phone or I still need to get on a zoom call in order to cultivate that friendship. And I'm grateful for the opportunity and the technology to do that. 
but I also just miss seeing people's faces and like, who can I go for a walk with? Who can I go play around to golf with, or, you know, like grab a burger or something like that, you know, as, as stuff starts to open up a little bit and people get more comfortable. How has that been for you? And would you agree with me that making friends as an adult is hard? And, and again, how has it been for you? Yeah, I agree. It's very hard. I think, you know, like I was kind of like had this philosophy like oh, about a year ago, like I'm pre prior to COVID. I'm good. Like, I don't want to make any like I like I feel like I got my a couple of close friends from college, a couple of close friends in San Francisco. Like, I, I'm kind of done. I don't want to like go through the hassle of like making new friends. But this year has been pretty incredible because I uh, started seeing an amazing woman last year. We're living together now. We fell in love. We started seeing each other right before the pandemic. And now I got to meet some of her friends and I got these new friends, like couples friends. And it kind of like opened my eyes and me like, I thought I was done. I thought I had like kind of retired the friendship kind of like yeah. my, my, my list was I'm full, you know, I'm not hiring anymore. <laughs> you know, going out, winning the I, championship. <laughs> I think there's like a Seinfeld episode like that. It's like, Jerry's like, no, I don't have enough friends. I'm not, I'm not hiring, you know, like, and I was like, whoa, it's like all like a little bit of a life change. Like maybe like, you know, you know, you all having a baby, you suddenly are like, okay, like I'm looking for different friends. Like now I want couples friends. Right. And now we have like friends that Allie and I hang out with together. And that's a beautiful thing. Kind of gave me a little bit of inspiration of like, oh, this, it just, it doesn't, it's not impossible. Just changes. It's just a different type of friend, mm -hmm. new context, new beginnings. Um, so that really made me a little bit more optimistic about it. The other thing was just the proactive, like you got to be proactive. Like, you know, which isn't what we all want to hear, <laughs> yeah. but right. that's definitely one of the things I learned. The people that seem to make friends as an adult, like they have a, um, you know, in uh, non-pandemic times, they'll have like a standing on their calendar once a month, they host a potluck. Hmm. And it's like a Saturday once a month and any new people they met in the last month, they invite to the potluck. Any people that have come to the potluck previously or their friends, in their city, their homies, they invite those people meet and it's just simple. They got it going, right? It's recurring, right? And it's like, okay, that's awesome, right? I, I met another person in the book that, and they, they say like, always go on a second date. So in the same way that you would always go on a second date with someone, if you were dating, you know, provided the person wasn't the worst or that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't even spend, you know, 20 minutes with them, yeah. but you would say, okay, like they might not be my best friend. They might not be, you know, the person I want to, you know, see every day for the rest of my life, but we're going to hang out a second time. So no matter what you, you meet them, you connect once you make a plan to, you know, get a drink, you make a plan to go for a walk, you make a plan to get a cup of coffee, whatever, so that it's just like, you're keeping the momentum going. Um, but having I think a big, the big, big thing that came up in the book is ritual, hmm. right? This kind of ritual, a regular practice, right? Whether it's expressing gratitude, um, whether it's having that kind of annual, um, you know, boys weekend or girls night or whatever uh, Monday night activity club where you're doing different activities on a Monday night, a men's group, whatever it is like those things really foster friendship because they're always on the calendar again. It's not, you know, it's like people can look forward to them. They could become part of a community. There's built in community. It doesn't end. There's repetition. You get to know people. There's a lot of the psychology of this kind of shows like the mere exposure effect. Like the more you spend time with someone, the more likely you are to like them. Mm -hmm. So if you, you know, you can't have it just be like, we're kind of taught about friendship, like, oh, like the, the net, like the, 
the like networking piece of it, but less the like relationship building over time is much more important. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta keep putting breadcrumbs down. <laughs> right? breadcrumbs. No, it's yeah. exactly. <clears throat> yeah, for sure. For also, sure. the other thing is like, you don't need lots of, you don't, you know, that's the, the other thing that came up in, in the, in the research a little too, was, you know, the majority of people are looking much more to go deep rather than wide. Mm-hmm. Like we all kind of like, you know, we can amass connections or followers. That's cool. There's use in that maybe, but we only need a few people that we need to go want to be able to go deep with. It's like, who's, you know, who's coming over to my house? Like who's, you know, one person put it as who's bringing the birthday cake for the, for the party. Yeah. Right. Right. Like who's, when I'm sick, who's picking me up. Right. Mm -hmm. Or who's, who's going to be there when I need someone to call or who's like, if I'm having a rough day, like who can I call? Like, that those kind of friends. So if we just focus and it, it might be kind of liberating because it's like you only need a few of those and, if, and going closer with a few people could be actually more meaningful and more powerful than being like, all right, I got to maintain, you know, relationships with this person and that person. And I've just met them and I just to, to kind of simplify it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Quit putting pressure on yourself that uh, that's got to be more. It's got to be this. Right. It's just. It's, it's okay to just go deeper with, you know, a couple of people and have some great friends as opposed to a bunch of good friends. Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's very telling, man. And, you know, I'm someone who, as I've kind of come up through life, like I've always had a pretty wide net. And so as I've gotten older, I've also noticed that I like having really cool, deep conversations with people. And, yeah. and so that is more of a one-on-one thing and not a, we're all rolling out to the party. Let's go. Right. Like that, that, that James, that James has changed a little bit. Don't get me wrong. Still crush a party smiley. Okay. Don't you <laughs> oh, worry about it. I'm in there shaking hands and kissing babies, but. Well, uh, that was, yeah, me too, man. I'm similar. Like I, I remember yeah. in college rock rolling around freshman year being like, are you going to the fit? Are you going? Come on. Just let's all go to we're, like, we're going to the party. Come on. Yeah. Like everyone, you should be friends and we should be friends. You know, it's like, you get a little older and you're like, eh, like, you know, the one-on-one, like, you know, like, you know, there's certain friends that maybe want to get together three or four, but sometimes it's like, no, one-on-one is cool. Yeah. At some point in our lives, we begin to learn the value of time. And we realize that time is no longer uh, an infinite thing, but it is, it is quite finite. And so, we start to dole out time like investments, right? It's like, okay, this is an investment. And where am I going to invest my time? To whom am I going to invest my time? Into what as far as businesses or or, or, or whatever? And I know that that has been that's been a, definitely a big weight on, on me, you know, like, you know, a classic Hamilton quote, why are you always writing? Like you're running out of time uh, and, and something like that. Like I'm, I'm, I'm constantly worrying about time and there's, mm. there's part of me, especially with this move that is like, I gotta, I gotta find the great friend. Like I need the community. I don't want to die younger. I need to find my people. Right. Like, but I have great people, right? Like I have, sure. I have really good friends. I have a lot of people that love me and, Sometimes it is hard because just because they're not, and don't get me wrong, I've met some really amazing people here, um, but but just because we're not sitting in each other's backyards every other night doesn't mean that we don't have the networks. And I think I think COVID and, and quarantine is has, has reminded us of that. I think there's been some patterns that we've developed with old friends that I hope will continue. 
right? Like I'm in text chains with, with friend groups that I was never in text chains with now. Um, and, and just like yes. checking in on each other. And Man. there's some really beautiful things that have come out of this. And, and that's what I love about your book, brother, is that, you know, friendship in the age of loneliness, that's not, it's not friendship in the age of COVID. Like the, the age of loneliness is really kind of the age of social media, especially yes. the, the takeoff of social media, right? So it's not like this is a, a book that only works for the rest of quarantine. This is, this is a, this is a book that speaks to a problem that COVID has brought more to light, but was very, very present before. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I started writing this book in 2017. So mm. yeah. And it's not going away. I mean, like, you know, our society is only going to become more technologically connected and advanced. So it's, it's a big issue and it's, it's one that's not going away. And um, I think too, yeah. Like, you know, the hardest thing I think, you know, about this time with friends is like, we just, we don't have those regular moments of bumping into people. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Coffee shop moments, coffee shop moments, or, you know, water cooler moments, like, you know, bumping into people at a cafe, restaurant, airport, whatever. Um, that's, you know, that's really hard, but, you know, hopefully I think we emerge from this. I hope, you know, at least a little bit more aware of how important people are in our lives. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. I hope so. Um, you know, I, I think I, I definitely kind of will cherish more, being able to go to a birthday party, going to a potluck, going over to someone's, going inside someone's house. Oh my God, oh my going God. inside someone's house. Like, right? <laughs> so or many people redecorated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, com- I completely agree. I completely agree. And, and I hope it does too. You know, I mean, this, the pandemic was great because I think it, it shook up patterns. And it's, it's important to break our patterns up every once in a while. And I'm not saying that I'm grateful for the pandemic, but in some ways, I think if we, if we don't learn anything from it, then it was wasted time. And the worst yeah. thing in life, in my opinion, is wasted time. So, uh, Smiley, speaking of wasting time, you did the opposite here, my brother. I cannot thank you enough for spending this time with me, with us, uh, and hanging out here in the diner, taking it back to your New York, your New York days, my friends. That's true. <laughs> back at the diner. And uh, I cannot Talk, thank you enough. This- yeah. Hell yeah, Once brother. Yes, yes. The book comes out, Friendship in the Age of Loneliness, uh, comes out in May. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon. Uh, and you should do that. I did. Um, and you should as well. Uh, but Smiley, how you feeling here, brother, as we're wrapping up this conversation, my guy? I feel great. Thanks for having me, James. This is a pleasure, honor, pleasure, privilege. Um, I'm so excited so we get to kick it again in person. And I've never been to Minneapolis. Minneapolis. That's like high on my list. Are you in Minneapolis? You're in Minneapolis, yeah, right? Indeed, indeed. I've yes. never been. I have an fr- old friend from college, Becca, who is out there. I've been wanting to visit for a long time. Um, so you'll have to take me to your favorite uh your favorite diner when we get out there, your favorite lunch spot. It's on. I already know the exact spot we're going to. Yes. Don't you worry about it. That's it. And I and I look forward to uh, meeting this, uh, this woman that has brought an even yes. bigger smile to your face, my brother. Thank you so much for hopping in the diner with me, my guy. I appreciate you. Y'all, that was Smiley Poslowski coming into the diner, holding it down like a boss. He is an incredible man. Hope you gleaned a lot from it. I know I did. And uh, I'm excited to hug some people. Let's let's all hug when this whole thing ends. Y'all, I need a hug, friends. Come on. But in the meantime, my friends, please tune in again next week to the next episode of Diner Talks with James. 
And between now and then, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. So special to spend this time with you all. Be well. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. <laughs> if you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, come on now, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.